0: I don't believe. I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a
1: little bit more. This is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit. Like, uh... hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode fifty-nine, and today we're talking about uh, no country. No country for old men. Been a minute. Um, from 2007, directed and screenwritten by the Coen brothers, based on the Cormac McCarthy novel from 2005, I don't know why I said it like that, 2005, I think it just had a stroke, 20-05, um, so before we get into that though, I think we we got some catching up to do, because we haven't recorded an episode in uh, six years, some, Yeah, it's, it's been a minute since uh, July, it looks like. I've,
0: I, I've had two kids since we stopped.
1: Yeah, we we adopted them. 2 there ones from China, ones from Kenya. Um, but yeah, we just didn't record for a while because uh, world world is a fuck. Uh, everything went wrong. We were busy with work and uh, the aforementioned adopted children. So <laughs> just didn't didn't do it. Although in, in the absence um, of the show, I, I've been uh, I've taken up riding a bicycle as a hobby um lost like 10 pounds ridden cool. ridden like i think today i hit like 280 miles or something like that total which is like not a lot if you're like an actual cyclist that owns the the skin tight lycra and all that stuff but for me it's pretty good
0: yeah that's cool i was actually looking at bikes on on offer up the other day i was like man i want to ride a bike uh
1: it's a big COVID thing, like a, a bunch of people, it's, it's like a known thing that COVID has, and quarantine has, has led to a rise in people buying bicycles. And at the same time, there's a shortage in bicycles and parts because of shipping. And, you know, bicycle parts are kind of low down the totem pole when it comes to important things that need to be shipped overseas.
0: Yeah, I was, I think the, the way, I, the reason I was thinking about it is there's a new uh, a David Byrne special on uh, HBO called american utopia based on that last album he released
1: and he's a big big
0: guy yeah and and i was thinking about david Byrne, and i have his uh uh book bicycle diaries actually i think i bought it at mckay's when when a bunch of us were there um, a year or two ago or whenever that was back in the the good old days probably like four years ago (laughs) i have no (laughs) idea uh but I was looking at that book and, you know, it's all about him just riding his bike all over the world. And uh, I was like, God damn, I need a bike. And uh, didn't find one. I guess everyone else had the same idea before me.
1: I would rec- I would say uh, Facebook Marketplace is the place to look. That's where I bought mine. It seems to be like popping off on there, at least in this area. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, it's like the nicest bike I've ever owned, but it's still not even like that nice of a bike.
0: Yeah. is there a mongoose <laughs> yeah you got pigs? yeah a pop pigs? mad
1: Willies um huh. no it's funny there's like a group of like uh young kids, look like they look like maybe they're in like middle school that ride around town and they all have like these really colorful mongoose mountain bikes and they just like wait for traffic to not to like lighten up and then they like get in the middle of the street and like ride a Willie down the road like downtown they think they look so cool <laughs> and they do I wish I was one of them. Have you, do you know the uh, YouTube channel, uh, Genuine
0: Jerks? That like little sketch comedy thing? No. Those guys have one where they like hear a motorcycle, like a guy on a motorcycle revving his engine uh, outside their window and they like run over to the window and they're just talking about how badass this guy is. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, I think the title's like, how how guys on motorcycle think you're reacting or something like that.
1: Yeah. Like I've, since I've started riding the bike, my hatred for motorized vehicles has just gone through the roof. Like earlier today, I was, I went on a big rant because the past couple of days, it's like everybody in town has forgotten what a bicycle is and like how to interact with a person on one. Mm -hmm. So like I'll be in a bike lane and people will come up behind me and just like refuse to pass me. So they're just like creeping on my ass the whole time. And it's very like uncomfortable and like cars will back up behind them. And I'm like, I'm in the bike lane. I literally have no power in this situation. I never do. I'm on a bicycle.
0: So I guess the question is, uh, from a psychological perspective, like to what degree did you take up biking as a hobby so that people would be riding your ass? (laughs)
1: That's, that that's all I'm in it for (laughs) just me like serenely pedaling very slowly as the cars pile up behind me. Um, but yeah, that's, that's been my, the bee in my bonnet recently. Mm.
0: I'm not sure. I've been watching a lot of old movies. I've like stopped watching the news and just like started watching the criterion channel. I'm just like watching all things pre 1975.
1: Um, retreating into the, the past <laughs> i just like um, i like to imagine you're watching like singing singing in the rain just over and over again
0: <laughs> well, i watched a great movie called phantom lady the other night um phantom. i watched a good one called possessed with phantom Joan of crawford. The lady um, phantom of the ladies Joan Megaplex. crawford yeah, there's. I've, I've seen some good ones. I watched uh, Images by Robert Altman from the '70s. They've got like a Criterion has this like special '1970s horror thing going on right now.
1: And yeah, I saw uh, that on Instagram or something.
0: Yeah, it's cool. I got, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Don't Look Now. And,
1: uh, it's cool. Nice. I, I actually I've gone the opposite. I don't think I've watched a movie. It's been a few weeks probably since I've like watched a a movie. Um, been watching a lot of TV shows that aren't great. Um, because like picking shows that me and Lava can agree on. So usually that means I just let her pick because she doesn't like Mm -hmm. anything I pick. Um, so we've been watching like a lot of sitcoms. We watched all of Shit's Creek in about a week.
0: Oh, yeah. Did Did you finish the last season? Yeah. And
1: it was, it was,
0: uh, I still I've watched half of the last season. I don't know how I haven't finished it.
1: It's a I I, I liked it, but it it's not groundbreaking or anything. It's just sort of but it's got some good it's, jokes.
0: It's better than your average sitcom. I, I feel like it's like you know, it has has good intentions. It's not,
1: you know. I like the Eugene Levy school of humor, like the Christopher <laughs> Guest type stuff, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and then like I don't know, right now we're the big thing is we're, we're watching uh I think I forget what the actual show is called. It's like world's most dangerous race eco challenge Fiji.
0: Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I've heard of this. Okay, And
1: uh, we're on, we're like the end of that. And that's been kind of interesting to look at like <laughs> the, these people coming from around the world to do this endurance race over the course of a week. And they're like dying and all of this, but there'll be these stops where they like hire a local to help them or like carry a bag or something. And at one point, this team hired this like fourteen year old kid who didn't have any shoes on, and he's just like flying up this mountain, and they're like, oh, and have all their like expensive gear on. <laughs> uh, of course, you know they had been like going nonstop for three days or whatever, but it was still yeah. pretty funny that this kid's just like, hurry up, come on. Um, uh,
0: well, I've just been reading the shit out of books mostly. I finished the Overstory, which was fantastic excellent,
1: excellent. We are, we're gonna have to do a we can do an episode about that now
0: yeah yeah for sure that, that was, was like uh that was the best novel i've read in in maybe all year uh, i'm just looking back at my bookshelf to see what i've done i finished that john berger book uh portraits i've been like weirdly into art uh i read a book called nature and madness by paul shepherd which kicked ass Um, shit. I don't know. That's I've like once once COVID hit, my like reading rate just like went through the roof in quarantine. I I like I'm I'm breaking records here with my reading list.
1: And I wish I I I have trouble focusing. I I don't know what's up with me, but like I, I have like three books right now that I've read half of, I read like half of invisible man after I'd like had just never gotten around to reading it. Um, and then I read, I've read like a third of October by Chana Mieville, which is his book about the Russian revolution mm-hmm. and like rereading a bunch of James Baldwin essays. Cause I'm trying to write a paper, like an article about him. I, I read a bunch of, uh, uh, the, the birth of tragedy the other day, by Nietzsche. Oh, yeah. Um, cause I, I listened to a, a great courses. I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks. I listened to a great course about Nietzsche and, mm. um, I was listening to a, to one about, uh, I was listening to an audiobook of Walden because it was free. And I was like, Yeah, <laughs> I haven't read Walden in a while. I'll listen to that and see if I, if I learn anything. I've been listening to a lot of stuff about nuclear weaponry. That's been <laughs> my thing recently. Um, so the making of the atomic bomb by Richard Rhodes and Command and Control by Eric Schlosser, who's the guy oh, that did I've, Fast Food yeah, Nation.
0: Dude, I I remember I almost bought Command and Control one time. It looked terrifying.
1: It, it it's so it, it's one of the most hilarious books I've ever read in the sense of like <laughs> like existential Dr. comedy. Hilarious. Yeah, like there are so many times that the world should have just ended on on just like the dumbest shit you can imagine, but we just got away with it. It's so funny. Like planes that would just like randomly crash with carrying a nuke and it would like kill the whole crew and the nuke would like end up like crashing through somebody's house or something and the military would just cover it up. And the the big thing is the Damascus incident that it talks about in Damascus, Arkansas, where like a nuclear bunker, there was like a massive fuel leak and fire that should have just obliterated the middle of the country and nothing happened. (laughs) It's just, it's pretty great. And you, you learn about all these like during the cold war the U S would be like, we have all of these thousands of nuclear, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles ready to go. But then like most of them don't, or all of them like, don't really work. And like the navigation is so poor that there's like a 6% chance they would even hit the target anyway. (laughs) Mm. It's pretty great.
0: I, I heard a review of that book on NPR and then I flipped through it at the bookstore one night and I was like, it just scared the shit out of me. I just like didn't even want to read it.
1: It was it was pretty great. Uh, I learned about the Tsar Bomba, which I'd never heard of, which was the the largest nuclear weapon ever detonated, <laughs> made by the Soviet Union. You should look at look into that a little bit if you want to be terrified. People okay. saw the people saw the flash from it like two hundred miles away or something crazy like that. Uh, pretty, they did it like way up in Siberia, and just like you know left this giant crater. Eh, pretty cool um you know mankind was was a mistake but what are you gonna do <laughs> anyway um
0: that's that's what, what we've been up to just uh <laughs> watching and reading
1: you're riding my bike trying not to think too hard about anything <laughs> yeah and just being, being uh, on my bike like the whole world's going to shit. I guess I gotta go vote to Joe, vote for Joe Biden, even though it's not gonna fucking change anything and probably make things worse. <laughs> well, let me climb up this hill and then we'll see. Um, yeah. So uh, no country for old yeah. men. To, no to, no let's cheer up man. with
0: an undis. Yeah, let's 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 focus on the positive and talk about this terribly disturbing film.
1: Yeah, which I, I did rewatch this back when we were originally going to do that episode I gave it a rewatch just because I hadn't seen it in uh in a couple of years um and you know holds up definitely oh my god it's a
0: fucking masterpiece like as as big of a PTA fan as I am I you know watching this I love there will be blood but like watching no Country Old man I'm like this deserved the best picture Oscar that it won in 2007 or 8 or whatever it was Uh, it's a fucking masterpiece and i think what's so cool about it is like it is one of those movies that is totally enjoyable on a surface level like it's sort of tom and jerry you know cat and mouse uh good guy bad guy thing and you can just you know zonk out and enjoy it because the filmmaking is so compelling like the action is is worth watching the the dialogue is like very uh entertaining and sort of witty in a in a very particular way uh but also if you care to pay attention there is just like a fucking biting commentary on like the world we live in That is. I think kind of informs and and feeds the nightmarishness of the film and I think that's probably why it succeeds uh, so well. It's like like the way you have a dream and when you don't understand the dream, the dream is way scarier. It's like there are so many levels to this movie. The fact that they're kind of difficult to access is what makes is what makes it so
1: creepy yeah. You have that dream, and, and then you wake up. <laughs> um, so then I woke up. <laughs> I I, uh, I was just thinking about what you were saying about um, how on a, just on the surface level, this movie is incredibly enjoyable. So even if you don't, because you know when I watch it, just because I have this you know English degree, like ruined mind, I don't really even pay attention to the whole cat and mouse part of it. I'm too busy right. thinking about like men's souls being at hazard and that kind of thing. Um, and, but, but I do, th- I do think you're right about that. And it has that kind of, it, that's why I think maybe people call this like a new Western. If you think about it. I mean, new Western in the sense of like unforgiven or more recently like hell or high water, that kind yeah. of idea. Or
0: even, uh, there will be blood.
1: Yeah. Um, of just those classic Western stories of like, Good versus evil, black hat, white hat, sort of stuff, but has this extra element of like the way you should be reading those things. Blood Meridian, too, I guess. Um, yeah, so so much
0: of like the the neo western is problematizing the kind of implicit ideology in the old western of good guy, bad guy, black yeah. hat, white hat, sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and then you think about how this movie is set in the eighties, right? Like the early eighties, nineteen eighty. Yeah, which is just sort of like (laughs) just coming coming out of the '70s and all the turmoil and all that sort of stuff, and then coming into what would be just one of the most gonzo, batshit crazy decades with you know the the Reagan regime and everything happening, and and just like consumerism run amok and the fall of the Soviet Union and all that kind of stuff, Um, and to have this story that's very kind of incredibly localized and very kind of rural, being in West Texas where there's like nothing there. Um, But at the same time that it encapsulates so much of this sort of internationalized insanity is pretty, pretty great.
0: Yeah, I I this is this is the stuff I want to talk about because it's so jarring uh, when you realize that this movie is set in 1980, which you realize when uh, Shagur goes to the gas station and and there's the famous coin toss scene with the old. Uh, store owner and you realize that the coin has been traveling 22 years, you know, since 1958 uh, to get where it is. And so you're like, wait, it's 1980. Uh, and because you're in such rural Texas, you, it just sort of looks older. Uh, and, and it's not till, till then that you realize, Oh, we're in 1980. But even then you only know that and you don't really, the movie doesn't really feel like it takes place in the eighties Until that extremely abrupt cut to the like skyscraper in, in, I guess they're in like Dallas or Houston or some big city in Texas. Um, And you're like, oh, this is like for real, you know, this is basically present day. Um, And (laughs) I think that cut is meant to be very jarring um, to sort of shake you out of your. Uh, kind of artificial projection of old timiness onto what is clearly a, a Western of some sort. Uh, And to remind you that you're in the world of like skyscrapers and like international capital and, and the continuum that is, you know, uh, drug trafficking and corporate business.
1: Yeah, and this this whole idea that kind of runs through the movie of of how this is you know no country for old men. This is like craziness that that has never been seen before and all that. But really, it's just kind of a transposition of all the same kind of brutality that you have from the old Wild West. It's just now we have skyscrapers and you know better TVs and shit like that. Like it, it it's just it's, updated. More, it's more
0: concentrated in a way.
1: Yeah, and and now you know it's also taken on this this new form which is this kind of drug cartel intertwined with oil industry crazy thing that that isn't unraveled for us in the film because it ultimately doesn't matter like the the point of the film's not to sort of show you how these things are connected but sort of show you how I guess how they're visited upon people that otherwise would just be going about their day, you know, um doing whatever it is, whether it's hunting or like, you know, sheriff just trying to have a cup of coffee and crack jokes with his wife and all that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I sent you that article. There's an article called human become coin, neoliberalism anthropology and human possibilities in no country for old men by Jonathan Elmore and Rick Elmore from the Cormac McCarthy Journal in 2016, and it's it's an interesting read, and it's the only. So so I watched this movie, you know, a couple months ago, and I had been reading, and finally finished uh, Postmodernism by Frederick Jameson, and so I was thinking about his concept of hyperspace and. And I watching this movie and that abrupt cut I was just talking about sort of got me thinking about hyperspace in this movie and, and kind of everything hyperspace entails, like the death of the individual, the, you know, the, I think Don DeLillo says the future belongs to crowds. And that's sort of, uh, that's sort of the, the places of hyperspace is like the place for crowds. Um, uh, anyway, when I watched it and thought about hyperspace, I realized that this movie takes place in 1980 for very specific reasons, because it's sort of the uh, accepted birthday of kind of the neoliberal era. And this uh, article, human become coin is, is interesting. And I think it's on the right track. I disagree with it a little bit, but Uh, I've got it pulled up here and the authors say that Anton Shagur embodies the neoliberal subject, a creature defined and motivated by market logic, risk management, and the elimination of competition. The extent to which market forces define his identity develops throughout the novel – they're talking mostly about the novel, not the movie – as he becomes increasingly cognizant that market forces govern not only his nature – but also all humans and the nature of reality itself. So he, he goes on to talk about how McCarthy is basically trying to d- depict human beings, not as homo sapiens, but as homo economicus or economicus, however you say that, mm-hmm. uh, through, and you see plenty of examples of like financialization, again, a, a, a tenet of, uh, neoliberal era, uh, where like everyone understands everything in financial terms. think of the scene where, uh, Moss is trying to cross the border and he's bleeding profusely, but the young guys won't like, won't help him out unless he pays them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then at the end when Shigor is in the car wreck and he pays the kid for his shirt, mm-hmm. Um, exactly exactly and, and the sense. kids
0: the kids say hell mister I'll give you my shirt but he insists like it's only fair in his mind and he, this, that's where I disagree with these guys in this uh, essay they say Shigur embodies the neoliberal subject I, I don't think that is true I don't think Anton Shagur is a person I don't think we're supposed to read him as like a, a human being I think he embodies the market I think Anton Chigurh is an embodiment of a deregulated capitalist free market. Uh, I think the best arguments for this are the fact that he is constantly, uh, you, you see him unlocking doors, you know, with his little tool, whatever that thing is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a pretty good metaphor for like deregulation. Like, there are no such thing as borders. Any any border that exists can be easily uh, overcome, and, and so it, it's interesting to read that uh, sort of theme or, or whatever you call it, uh, motif as like deregulation. So just think of Anton Shigor as like the market, and at the end that scene—that's what made me think of this. Uh, the only time he's you know Chigurh's slowed down at all is in a crash. You know, it's like, it's like, here's this, uh, if he's the embodiment of the market, uh, it, in a way, it's sort of like a cheap pun McCarthy <laughs> makes. Uh, you know, this sort of market crash. Uh, but that's the only thing that slows him down at all. Uh, down at all. But then he just sort of goes off and you know he's going to be fine. Uh, the way he is fine when uh, Moss, I think, Injures him in some way. Shoots him, uh, right?
1: Like he gets some yeah. some buckshot yeah. or something in his leg. Uh, that, that's
0: another another. Uh, it's during that part uh, or right after it. Uh, another tenet of the sort of neoliberal era is the privatization of medical care, and probably uh, watch. You know, one of my favorite parts uh, through this reading is that scene where he blows up the pharmacy or the car outside the pharmacy. And it's like, that's, that's another thing. I feel like this article gets wrong. They kind of, they kind of had a, uh, a kind of literal reading of that scene. But to me, it seems like if you think of Shigur as the market, uh, the car that he blows up becomes this like spectacle maybe like some sort of war or foreign conflict, you know, uh, that, that functions as a distraction, a spectacle for distraction. And and while the people are busy inspecting this, you know, spectacle, uh, he is ransacking the, uh, the medical facility, the, you know, the pharmacy. Uh, so there, there's just all these little microcosms that I feel like are pretty pretty good uh cases for Shigur as the embodiment not of a neoliberal subject but as like the market itself um and that uh, i i feel like i'm rambling here but like that uh that coin toss scene is a is another good example uh where the guy you know he basically tells the store owner you 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 have to participate you have to call it um and the whole conversation up to that point has sort of been about how this guy came to own his business. Um, And so it's, it's highlighting this arbitrary, the arbitrariness of success in this uh, sort of uh, what's the word? I think the novel uses like mercantile ethics or something like that. Um, But in like old school commerce, mercantile, commerce uh, it's just sort of a, a crap shoot and
1: that, that does kind of like i don't know makes the ending even more depressing when you think about it uh when uh moss's wife just refuses to participate that is
0: exactly correct that is the real pessimism of the movie and
1: the, what, she refuses, to, and dies refuses anyway. to
0: participate and dies anyway as if to say there is no way to opt out of this
1: and it's sort of the same thing when uh Probably, well, I don't know. Probably my favorite scene, which is Woody Harrelson when he when sugar uh, count or, uh, corners him in the hotel room, <clears throat> and he's like, "I can get you the money. I've seen it. I know where it is." And it, it's become it becomes really clear very quickly. Like it was never about the money. Mm-hmm. Um, that has he that. says
0: he says I know something better than that. I know where it's going to be. Yeah, and he says, <laughs> "Where's that?" He says. <laughs> be brought to me and placed at my feet
1: <laughs> the the best and that, that has a quote uh by Shigur in that scene that's just like been running through my head for for months now which is uh, if, the, if the road yeah, if, yeah, if yeah, the yeah. rule you follow brought you to this point then of what use was the rule <laughs> does he
0: say the rule or the road
1: i thought it was the rule
0: that that changed. i can't remember we need to we need to look that up uh but yeah, that's a, that's a great a great part. Uh, and I feel in in the sort of reading I've been going off of, I feel like Carson Wells, Woody Harrelson, is like this. Uh, it's like that he's like this attempt at internal regulation, uh, and you see you see where that gets you. Um, basically, impossible given the sort of. Overwhelming power of Shigure.
1: Yeah, it it is the rule.
0: The rule, Mm -hmm. really? Okay, weird. For some reason, I thought you said the road. Uh, If the rule you followed led you here, of what use was the rule? Yeah. Interesting.
1: So brought you here to you know you think you have this you think you have this internal regulation thing figured out where you're gonna you know, get the money and, and solve the problem and all that. But now I'm going to blow you away. So what, what use was any of your action up to this point? Yeah. Like why, like what, what good did your cold, your code of morals do you right? Which is sort of, that, that's a big like McCarthy thing is that I don't know. He has this thing, this kind of interesting relationship to morality where you can have a very sort of set in stone morality, but it almost in his novels it almost always kind of comes to nothing or gets blown up in some way.
0: Yeah, and and you see uh, in in No Country for Old Men, you see that any any moral action that Moss takes, which and moral action is is generally you know what the guy in the white hat. Was supposed to do in the old westerns, like that's how he succeeded, because he was morally superior. But you see in No Country for Old Men that any moral act Moss does is is the problem, it, like this, the whole narrative gets uh, put, you know started in motion because he decides he can't live with himself if he is not uh, bringing water to this sort of vulnerable foreign other, you know, uh embodied by the dying Mexican man in the desert. And so his Moss's need to care for the sick is the thing that puts him in the most danger. Uh, and then at the end, when he dies, you know, he's he's sort of flirting with this woman right before he dies. And so you see any sort of human uh any sort of hu- moral human action is uh is how you get in trouble in in the system that he lives in
1: yeah um i just i just love that scene when he he wakes up and he's just like staring at the ceiling he's just like okay <laughs> and you sort of get that it, it's that same kind of thing I have at least once a day where you know something's just gonna be like the most annoying crock of shit that you can imagine, but you got to do it anyway. And you're just like, okay, <laughs> let's see where this leads yeah, like, me.
0: it's like, he's wrestling with his, you know, with the devil on his shoulder or whatever, or the, his conscience. And, uh, you know, I just reread that. Uh, I think you sent me that article that, uh, McCarthy wrote about the unconscious. It's called Kukule's problem. I think, mm-hmm. um, which is super interesting, but he basically makes the argument that like there is this moral component to the unconscious and how it it, it basically says it's hard to deny if you study the unconscious long enough that, that it seems to be this weirdly sort of Socratic, uh, sort of cryptic moral teacher, uh, and that's why you know you have these weird dreams that are that are delivered in totally visual. Uh, you know, it's all like uh, like an image language. That's his the main point of the article. It's like he's talking about pre language and and how language was developed uh, out of the unconscious. But uh, yeah, you have these you know weird dreams that are that will recur in different images over and over and over until you until you become aware of like what they're trying to tell you and so that's how he makes the argument like the fact that they that your dreams and your unconscious have something to teach you is very strange from a, like a darwinian standpoint uh you know unless unless their dreams about like how to build a fire and stay safe. <laughs> it doesn't really make any sense from a Darwinian perspective.
1: Yeah. I, I, it's kind of makes me think of, uh, I mean, all these, because this is really, it's easy to watch this movie. If you haven't like read the novel or, or thought about it too much and come away from it thinking that this is kind of Llewellyn's story, Right. But really, if yeah. you've read the novel, it's kind of Ed Tom Bell's story.
0: Well, um, and if if you just, you know, if you watch the whole movie and actually think about it, yeah. the way Moss just gets, you know, the, the the audience is made to feel naive for rooting for Moss.
1: Yeah, And then he's just unceremoniously gets gunned down, not even by Chigurh, but by right. random, you know, gunmen
0: as if to say he never had a chance and you are naive for believing in the myths of like Western justice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like it was never going to happen. It was going to catch up eventually. Um, but you know, Ed Tom Bell in the movie, like I, I, really like, uh, Tommy Lee Jones's portrayal. And I think it's one of my favorite parts of the movie. And they, they include a lot of the good Ed Tom stuff. But if you read the novel, there's way more Ed Tom kind of musings, mm-hmm. uh, at Tom musings. Um, and the, especially like the beginning and the ending of the novel, which I think for my money is like one of the strongest openings and closings of like any novel ever. Um, that's probably like, I don't know, there's some exaggeration in that, but for me personally, I think it's that good. And it's, it's the scene. I mean, the opening is, is definitely, we already mentioned that it's the part we're talking about, you know, you'd have to put your soul at hazard. You know, to encounter something that you don't understand, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and then the end is that famous part where he's talking about the dream of his father with the the horn with the fire in it, which we talked about like back when we did the road. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah because
0: that's a that's a recurring image in like most of McCarthy's books. It's like like not just in one story; it's it's all over the place.
1: Yeah, because it's such a kind of good succinct image of keeping kind of humanity or keeping hope or whatever it is alive. Um, and it's very kind of has a kind of Freudian, Freudian thing where it's always like, in this case, it's the the father with the fire leading the son like into the, the unknown, that kind of thing. Um, but Ed Tom has a lot of that. We were talking about of like unconscious kind of morality where he can't really, he can't seem to put into words what this kind of uneasiness he feels, but he keeps like trying to get at it through stories, stuff like that. Yeah, and he,
0: he, he seems to be kind of defensive about it. Like he kind of jokes around to not really feel the full weight of it mm-hmm. in some ways. Like he, he's definitely, if there's any comic relief in this movie, it's, it's him. Um, yeah, he's just, you know, sort of clever and, and, and has these little, you know, like old man
1: quips. Um, what is it he says when they, they get to Llewellyn's trailer and they realize that they like just missed Shiger? He's like, Well don't that just I don't know, he has some like old manism that he He's like, Well don't they just remember, burn my but, ass? But that's not what he says. But Well the young like guy
0: that. is like, Oh, oh sheriff, he was just here. Oh <laughs> that is aggravating. Yeah.
1: Um. So yeah that. Um, and the fact that like Ed Tom Sort of like Is unraveling the whole thing It's sort of Piece by piece while everyone else kind of doesn't know What's going on but then at the end it kind of That great scene where um, He's deciding it, You know they, the way the Cohen shoot it make it kind of more dramatic Where he's trying to, to decide Whether or not to like go into this Hotel room you know, at the end. And yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. you get the shot that sort of shows sugar like hiding in there. But we're kind of left thinking about whether or not that's actually the case. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the novel, before it gets to that part about the, the father, the dream about his, his father, he has this cool part where I don't know if you remember this, but he's talking about the uh, stone water basin where there was a house that had this like hand carved stone water basin behind it. And he was, I don't. he's talking about the guy who carved it. So let me just give this a specific part. He said, um, said, I read a little history of it since, and I ain't sure it ever had one. I'm sorry. But this man had sat down with a hammer and chisel and carved out a stone water trough to last 10,000 years. Why was that? Why was it that he had faith in, or what was it that he had faith in? It wasn't that nothing would change, which is what you might think, I suppose. He had to know better than that. I've thought about it a good deal. i thought about it after I left there with that house blown to pieces. I'm going to say that water trough is there yet. It would have took something to move it, I can tell you that. So I think about him sitting there with his hammer and his chisel, maybe just an hour or two after supper. I don't know. And I have to say that the only thing I can think is that there was some sort of promise in his heart. And I don't have no intentions of carving a stone water trough, but I would like to be able to make that kind of promise. I think that's what I would like most of all. And just the trying to put into words kind of what he's feeling about, about this of like, he wishes he could have this kind of eternal hope of like putting that much of himself into something that may be there in 10 years. And and the,
0: the idea that what you do in your life matters for future generations and that some new iteration of life is not going to come along and absolutely obliterate the meaning of your own life. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, that's what's happening in this movie is that, uh, and, and, and in the book too, where, it, you know, that you keep talking, uh, we keep talking about this new kind of thing. And, and that's what this article I read is like uh, the title, no country for old men is like really means no country for the old type of man, yeah. like homo, homo sapiens uh, it is gone. Um,
1: yeah, it comes from the second. and, And the,
0: the, the, like I was saying earlier, the, the attributes of homo sapiens of like moral, uh, duty to fellow human beings is actually sort of, uh, anathema. Is that the right word to say? Like it's, it's exactly opposite and against, uh, the logic of this new type of world, this homo uh, economicus. Uh, yeah, it's just, it, <laughs> I like this story the m- more every time I think about it.
1: It's, it's you know, masterfully crafted, but, uh, and this is kind of the most obvious thing to point out, but, you know, the the title coming from The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that entire poem is about you know, the second coming, this, this enormous change that, you know, nothing will ever be the same afterward. Um, and you know, this, this idea that like you're saying, it's not that it's no country for old men in the sense that Ed Tom is old and out of touch, but it's no country for men who sort of view reality and the value of life and the meaning of life in a certain kind of way. Like that's, that's no longer applicable to or applicable to what's going on you know, in the world around you, like that it's, right. it's become so different that, you know, you, you don't have to put your soul at hazard cause it's going to be at hazard by default.
0: And, and that's, that's the sort of point I wanted to make in talking about Jameson's notion of hyperspace. I feel like that hyperspace is like this concretization of, of what we're talking about right now, that sort of psychological transition, that psychological change Hyperspace is sort of this like geographical or just like external environmental uh, uh, embodiment of that inner change. And I also think that the uh, focus on drugs in this movie has to do with that. Uh, I, it made me think about the term altered states, um, you know, you know, which means like a, a – a, a, state of mind you're in when you're on drugs. But it it made me think like the world is in this altered state due to all these sort of neoliberal fucking forces we're talking about. And, and so the, the demand for drugs increases, you know, directly proportionate to the altered state of the world. So like the inner altered states are directly proportional to the uh, external altered state of the world. Uh, Anyway, that's just like a little detail I was thinking
1: about. No, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. It's just, you know, great, great movie. And I kind of want to talk about sugar a little bit more because McCarthy is really good, better than almost all everybody else at creating these kind of larger than life kind of too bad for hell kind of antagonists. So you have like the judge and blood Meridian and like Lester Ballard yeah. way back in child of God. And then we have yeah. Anton Chigurh in in this. Um, and what I really appreciate, and we've talked about this a little bit already is that he creates these kind of otherworldly, highly symbolic antagonists. And I think that's, that's why, what they tend to do in his novels uh, is so shocking is because like you're saying, we're trying to, to read to kind of scan the movie with Shigur being a, a real life, flesh and blood human being walking around. Right. Which yeah. he is like in uh, on the screen and in, in text and all that. But what he represents is so much more kind of like sinister and, and unhuman and inhuman and, and anti-human. And
0: Hmm? Uh, that, <clears throat> excuse me. That uh, I feel like the, the, the essential point there is that the what makes things scary in movies is sort of how effectively the filmmakers in <clears throat> the, how, how effectively the filmmakers code the the true like the real fear in some sort of imaginative fictional yeah. fear. And it's exactly like a dream. I know we've talked on the podcast before about movies as like cultural dreams. Mm -hmm. But like, so for instance, I recently remembered a uh, a scary dream I had when I was a kid. And the dream was I was riding my bike uh, in my neighborhood. And I got to sort of the end of the neighborhood. And there's this uh, field across the road from, from where sort of the cutoff of my neighborhood was when I was a kid. And I remember in the dream feeling just utterly terrified about that field and, and thinking it was like, like I should not go in that field because it is like in some way, something out there in the field wanted to hurt me. Uh, it's sort of, you know, not very distinct anymore, but I, I, for whatever reason, remember that dream. And I was thinking about that dream and how from, you know, now I'm 34, I probably had that dream when I was like six. And now when I think about it, I realize like, oh, I was, you know, the real fear that that dream embodies is the fear of like going beyond home because when you're a little kid you only sort of know your family and and your neighborhood is this sort of like safe haven at least you know it was where where I grew up and and so the real fear is is about breaching that sort of barrier and it's really a mental or psychological barrier in my mind it's not really about uh the field, you know, across across the road, it's it's this concretization, like a literalization of this inner fear. And like I'm saying, I think movies, especially scary movies, work on that same in, in that same level where on a conscious level we can say, oh yeah, Shagur is this, you know, psychopath and he's a killer. But but what really makes him scary is these sort of unconscious connections we're making uh, be- because the filmmakers and the, and the writer are so brilliantly coding the action he does uh, or, or they're, they're coding the the real fear of like, you know, the things we've been talking about, like market forces and death of the individual and all these things. Uh, they're coding that in this sort of very conscious, very, uh,
1: uh entertaining story yeah and i think a big part of <clears throat> what makes Shigor so kind of uh, what codes him is so being so scary <clears throat> is that he's so kind of i don't know like run of the mill right he get, he's got his weird like leave it to beaver haircut and all that sort of stuff <laughs> and the so thinking about this movie kind of got in my head entangled with this other thing I was thinking about, which was the, this idea of uh, submission and compliance. And this came up because uh, I was listening to some podcast, can't even remember what it was, but they were talking about people that, that refuse to wear a mask still and how you'll hear people talk about how that, you know, they refuse to, to comply. And if you wear a mask, it's just submission. And there I heard a can't remember the lady's name it's some lady who I think has been on the view before Uh, I really should do more research but she was saying that like seeing her kid go into school and all the kids in the school wearing masks that it was it was just them submitting and that it's really disheartening and scary to see young people submitting to authority so easily and all that you know as if they're all marching off to the third reich or something and uh, a big part without getting into that whole like debate in the real world um that that made me think of this idea that you know that that's such a stupid idea because we submit and comply to so many things on a daily basis that we don't even yeah. notice. Um, right,
0: and this is just like the most obvious example. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, you and, know, you and wear and it's a not even, and It's not even you have to ask. the The problem, the real problem, is is political because they feel like they're submitting to fucking nancy pelosi yeah that's the thing if it were their person telling them to wear a mask they wouldn't feel that at all they would feel like they were doing their patriotic duty you know uh that's such bullshit uh and here here's the big problem with that i've been thinking about this lately they people posit this like fucking global conspiracy theory with masks let's just imagine that that's that that it's possible that the Democrats apparently have the pull, international pull, to organize and implement a, a an international conspiracy where, uh, like most of the population of the planet is going to wear masks, or they have the, they have the pull to organize and implement a conspiracy of any kind. They've got that access. Why the fuck would if if they have that power? Why the fuck would they do it in this way? Like, why would it be about wearing masks? Like, if they have that power and they want to use it for nefarious purposes, why not do something actually nefarious? There's nothing nefarious about asking people to wear a mask. Uh, and and if and if you want to. Sort of engender this submission in people, there's a thousand better ways to do that than asking them to wear a medical mask. It, it just, it's fucking ridiculous. And I'm sick of how, uh, how much airtime ridiculous people are getting in like mainstream media. Yes. Um,
1: yes, well put. Ah. <sighs> but, uh, well so that you know that got me thinking about um, no country, and that a big part of of Shigor's sort of scariness is that he he sort of forces people to comply with what he's sort of asking of them, um and that they think they're doing so is like the correct response. So I'm thinking about, the, the first person, well, I guess not the first person he kills because that's the, the sheriff's deputy or whatever, but yeah. the uh, the guy that he pulls over in the cop car, and because the guy thinks that he's a cop, he's like, oh, it's a new kind of you know breathalyzer test or whatever, and then he kills him with the the cow gun, right? Yeah. um and, and how, like, what a fucking horrible way to die that you've just sort of been completely subsumed within compliance to this authority that you think exists but really it's Anton Chigurh and he's going to puncture your brain and kill you um, well and
0: it's 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 compliance at the hands of confusion yeah like yeah. it's so weird that the guy doesn't even know to rebel against it you know
1: yeah the same in the same with the the big coin flip scene in the gas station yeah which you know it, it doesn't matter because like if it comes up you know against the guy he's probably going to kill him anyway but but the guy doesn't know, you know, it's a whole thing of like, I got to know what I'm, what I'm, you know, set to lose. What I
0: stand to lose. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and like you say, it's compliance to, to an authority that doesn't really exist out of just conclude or out of just confusion, conclusion. Um, and that, that's so, and I was just thinking about that of like, and the only person who stands up to him on, on something like that is Llewellyn's wife, who I, I want to say Norma Jean, that's not her name though. Carla Jean. Carla Jean. Um, well I tell you, you, you
0: the, the only character who successfully defies Shigur is can you name it?
1: Hmm. Successfully? Who
0: Shagur wants something from them and this character does not give it to him. It's it's very interesting who it is. And there's no, there's no repercussions. No. It is the woman in the office of the trailer park. Oh, he, he he wants Llewellyn's information, uh, you know, and, uh, she refuses and she's like, did you not hear me? I, I, I can't, you know, I can't give you that information. And I feel like it's like, the, the language that she uses is like just sort of uh, quintessential bureaucracy language. And it's like even Shagur is subject to the like totalizing fuck you of bureaucracy. Like even he cannot transcend the I'm not uh, allowed to give you to give out information. Like even he can't overcome that.
1: <laughs> Everything else blows right through it.
0: Right, right. I don't think that's incidental <laughs> because like that's why, great. why even show that scene?
1: Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. That's a great point. I'd, I'd, it's uh, such a sort of like minor scene. I didn't even think about it, but I guess it, it seems like it's more meaningful than one would think.
0: Right. Cause he, I mean, you, you'd expect him based on the fact that he's just blown two people away to just be like, Or actually more than that, because I think he's killed the, like the managerial types uh, by that point. Uh, He's blown like five people away, four or five people away. You'd expect him to just be like, hey, tell me what I want to know and hold a gun to her head. But he doesn't. He, he, like, she, she, he realizes that he can't deal with her. Uh, You know, this uh, bureaucratic logic is inscrutable.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I'm just thinking about this whole like sugar is the market thing. And it's, it's
0: super fucking interesting to me.
1: Um, I mean the scene where he walks into the office and the high rise and like shoots the guy in the throat. And then the other guy, the younger guy is, says something like, you know, I, you know, I I don't want to get hurt or something. Or or are you going to shoot me? He says, are you going to shoot me? And sugar's like, it depends. Do you see me?
0: (laughs) Yeah, but you're, you're right. Uh, and I was going to say it if you didn't about the ending where with all these sort of metaphors in place about Shagur, you know, Chigurh being the market uh, in that ending scene with <clears throat> Carla Jean. And, you know, he says he tells her to call it on the coin toss and she refuses. And her point, she, she says the coin don't have no say. It's just you. She's saying you know, the market is the result of human decisions and, and there's agency behind this and we can control it. If only we could like, you know, become aware of this agency. But Mm -hmm. of course, Shigur, you know, here doesn't pay any attention to what she's saying. And so she refuses to participate. And then it's made clear that she dies. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the, it, that's the real pessimism of the movie is that even if you recognize all this stuff and you recognize that there is, uh, you know, that, that the market is not this, uh, inscrutable natural force. That's something Jameson says in postmodernism. He's like, this, basically, the most, uh, relevant question of our age is, or, or issue of our age is, uh, whether or not the market is innate to human nature. Uh, and he's like, this is the assumption of our age that cannot go unchecked or unchallenged. Uh, and that's exactly what she does. She challenges, uh, Shagur as the embodiment of the market. And even though she's aware and challenges his, you know, challenges him, she dies. There's no, way to opt out of this world.
1: No, at least not in that moment and not, not as a, it's something else. If you really wanted to sort of keep pursuing, this is the fact that Chigurh, well, not always, I guess, but mostly seems to deal with people kind of one-on-one when it's these kinds of situations. Right. So this Mm -hmm. idea that the individual alone cannot stand up to these, you know, market forces, right. It's going to take, You know a group of people Which the only kind of makes me think about The scene where he kills all the Cartel guys in the hotel room Um, But In the sense when he's like playing these sorts Of these head games um, It's always sort of alone at the gas station Alone with with Carla Jean Mm -hmm. uh, Alone With uh, I forgot With Carson Carson Um, And the individual alone You know No real power to stand up Against it,
0: yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and and we're conditioned, you know, like we were saying earlier about Moss. Moss is a sort of old school individualistic John Wayne cowboy hero, and we are conditioned to think that that archetypal character, uh, as Carla Jean says, can take all comers. Uh, you know, can deal with any level of evil, and then were slapped across the face with reality when when he dies off camera.
1: And you know the thinking back to the scene of Ed Tom deciding whether or not to go into the hotel room near the end. um, It's funny. That's like Ed Tom realizing he's not you know he's one one man, one old sheriff. He's not going to stand up against these forces. So what does he do? He retires. (laughs) <laughs> he 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 takes his pension, removes himself from the system, and just hangs around the house. Yeah,
0: and that I love that scene. I think it's his cousin that he goes to visit, Ellis, the old guy. Yeah, uh, that's that's a great scene where he basically sort of. I, I feel like Ellis becomes kind of McCarthy's mouthpiece, you know, for the for the kind of conclusion of the theme of the movie, which is. Uh, the world ain't waiting on you. He says, this, this country's hard on people. Uh, what you got ain't nothing new. Uh, it ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. So something like that. Uh, and it's, it, I think it's <clears throat> in a way it sort of contrasts that, uh, and problematizes the, the, uh, all too easy discussion that, ma mo- uh, Ed Tom has with the other sheriff from El Paso, the, the sort of big guy that he sits down with at the diner, mm-hmm. the guy who says God, goddamn
1: beyond everything. It's beyond everything. Ed Tom.
0: I love that line. Uh, but are you know, they're, they're just sort of, uh, on, uh, on their default mode, not really thinking they're just like, you know, all the crazy kids with their green hair. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then, and then, Ellis, you know, sort of says, "This, this is nothing new. This is everything that was, everything that is, has come before." Whatever it says in
1: Ecclesiastes, yeah, uh, nothing new under the sun, Ed Tom. And then he he literally says, "That's vanity." Uh, yeah, that's a good point.
0: Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I fucking love this movie. Like, I love it more now that we're talking about it.
1: It's great. It really, it just makes you think about how ridiculous 2007 was from a film standpoint, where you had this and uh, there will be blood.
0: Yeah, um, and it's it's very cool. Uh, it's almost like a volcano, Dante's Peak, Armageddon, Deep Impact thing.
1: <laughs> it's exactly where, like
0: where yeah. where you have like the you know the two movies that just sort of like manifest out of the cultural situation. Uh, where, you know, Daniel Plainview is this embodiment, uh certainly an embodiment of the of the market, um, uh, the same way Shigur is, but but you know, there's certainly differences. Um but still you know, neo Western capitalist critiques, such a weird thing to have in the same year.
1: Yeah. But you know, we 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 sort of benefit from that. Yeah, as pe- yeah. that that was just a a cool year. I'm just looking at like the Oscars that year, and it was like the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford.
0: Another Western. Weird.
1: Uh, yeah, Atonement was that year, which is a movie I haven't seen in a while, but I I liked it. Uh, Juno was the big sensation. Yeah. Uh, you know, Michael Clayton. A lot of a lot of cool good stuff that year. Um, but yeah, that I, I mean, no country holds up. What can you really say? <laughs> um, what the?
0: Uh, any? Do you have any idea what the Cohen brothers are up to? I know the last. I guess the last thing he did was that uh, Netflix.
1: Ballad Buster, Buster scrubs. One of was, them, I okay. think. I think I can't remember which one is flying solo for the first time and is making a version of Hamlet or no Macbeth.
0: Oh, cool!
1: With Denzel, nice. I believe. Um, I wish I could remember which one. I, I want to say it's Ethan, maybe. Uh, yeah, Tragedy of Macbeth, an A twenty four production. Oh, cool! Denzel as Lord Macbeth, Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth, Brendan Gleeson's in it. Uh, yeah, can be cool. I think. Yeah. I I, I'll watch it. But it's the first time that they haven't worked together.
0: Do you remember what their follow-up was to No Country for Old Men? Is
1: it Hill Caesar, I think?
0: No. Nope. Oh. Burn After Reading.
1: Oh, God. No, Hill Caesar's like way after that, yeah. But yeah, Burn After Reading is great. I miss so many because yeah. it's like Burn After Reading and then A Serious Man, which I rewatched uh, recently, which is great. Uh, True Grit, Inside Lewin Davis. I, I thought about I, saw, I had a day about two weeks ago where I just thought about inside Lewin Davis all day.
0: I love that movie. Um, I saw there's a there's a new uh, book about Paul Thomas Anderson coming out and I was reading this article about it and the guy who wrote it has a previous book about the Cohen Brothers and the book is called This Book Really Ties the Films Together.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: Which is a great title for a Cohen Brothers book.
1: God, I just—they haven't made a movie that wasn't at least good. I'm just like looking at their filmography. It's like Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Fargo, Big Lebowski, Oh Brother. It's just ugh, disgusting how good their output's been. Um, yeah,
0: I I love Burn After Reading. That's one that's. Uh,
1: if you want to uh, understand American politics, watch Burn After Reading. <laughs> it's such a good encapsulation of like all uh, the fact that like the main driving force that keeps the world spinning toward inevitable doom is just human stupidity.
0: Man, the what's uh, one thing I think that's brilliant about that movie is the sort of frame narrative where it starts in outer space and then like zooms in to earth. Mm -hmm. And because the music that's playing and, and the early parts of the film where we're led, it's, to believe it's going to be this like, like you mentioned earlier, like a Michael Clayton type political intrigue thriller type thing. Uh, But then by the time the movie's over and it fades back out to outer space, you realize that that perspective is not about like a satellite, you know, honing in on some sort of political intrigue. It's actually about how we are all these tiny, small animals with no clue you know about what's going on in the world uh all just trapped in our own little subjective experiences with no outlet and no understanding of of, rea- of reality that's, that's uh and I... any anything you think that is going to have meaning in that movie is is revealed to be just totally banal ridiculous perverted like the the, the... bike
1: Club oh yeah, that, that he's making.
0: You think he's building a bomb or something? But he's building a, a dildo a sex bike.
1: machine. Yeah, <laughs> that, I just love the at the end. J.K. Simmons's character is like, well, I guess we did it. Fuck if I know what we did. <laughs> yeah, this kind of sums up life.
0: But it's 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 interesting how the perspective is, you know, you know, like the 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 tone of these of No Country for Old Men and Burn After Reading are completely different, but somehow the Coen brothers are that unique where somehow both movies make sense from them because yeah. they're in ways they're like equally bleak. Uh, they both sort of posit no escape from, from human limitations. Uh, it's, uh, they are just such a, such a strange.
1: God. Uh, in, the, presence. in The scene, I think we've probably talked about this before, but the scene where, George Clooney shoots Brad Pitt. I think it was this character's name's chip or something.
0: I can't remember. Um, but yeah, when he's in the closet yeah, and he,
1: and he just like smiles, like trying not to scare him and then he blows his brain. Like that scene, that's one of those few scenes where it was so unexpected. It scared the shit out of me when it happened. I like jumped yeah. out of my seat. I was like, Whoa. um. but yeah, that, yeah, that, that's, I that as a follow up is, is very interesting.
0: Yeah, um, Chad is his name.
1: Chad, there you go. He thinks yeah. it's a Schwinn.
0: <laughs> he thinks it's a Schwinn.
1: Um, great but yeah, I guess we're done. I don't. What are we doing next week? We didn't even talk uh, about it. Uh, Osborne Cox. Uh, you, the security of your shit.
0: We have your shit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's do something scary for Halloween. Right. Uh, my suggestion is a James Wan double feature of The Conjuring and The Conjuring Two. Uh,
1: okay, but
0: I'm not, you know, I'm not married to that idea.
1: No, I mean, uh, I could do that. Like I said, I haven't haven't seen either of those. I've seen a couple of his movies, but not those ones. I know they're very popular.
0: I want to say at least one or two of them are on HBO. Do you happen to have HBO app?
1: Yeah, man. Come on now. Come on. Who do you think you're talking to? Come on. Um, I I
0: think it's on there.
1: Yeah, so... Yeah, we can do that. So, Conjuring 1 and 2. Are we going to have things to say about them?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I... I, I didn't just randomly pick those. I think those movies are a good way to talk about how horror films kind of, we, we sort of talked about it a little bit tonight, uh, how horror films become like, uh, we talked about cultural dreams, like cultural nightmares, and how there's always like a real fear. Kind of informing the Imaginative fear in these movies mm-hmm. And uh, So I think if we watch these with an Eye for like okay What's, what's actually happening In the culture that these movies Are referring to uh, I think it'll lead to some Decent discussions
1: Okay I'm sold then So the Conjuring 1 and 2 For next week um, Yeah I guess that's it We'll see you guys in six months.